This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Have you been thinking about learning Clojure but don't know where to start? Would you like a fun introduction to Clojure that guides you through the difficulties of learning new concepts? Would you like to learn the fundamentals of Clojure without spending hours wading through blog post tutorials? Try the interactive courses at PurelyFunctional.tv. They teach you Clojure quickly and thoroughly using animations, exercises, and screencasts. The courses build good fundamentals and guide you to develop deep skills with the Clojure language and libraries. You can get a 25% discount by using the link purelyfunctional.tv. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, CityCode and Chicago Erling are both coming up in Chicago this weekend on the 9th and 10th of October and look to be very interesting. If you are going to be in or around the Chicago area, these both look like fantastic conferences to check out. Next up is Codemesh.io. Codemesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. It takes place on the 3rd and 4th of November, with a tutorials day on the 2nd of November. Expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, John Hughes, Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, Don Syme, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zaplicki, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many, many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. On the 5th and 6th of November, Recon will be taking place in San Francisco. Recon is a two-day developer conference that brings together academia and industry to discuss a variety of distributed computing topics ranging from architecting, deploying, and developing NoSQL and distributed applications. Listeners can use the code SALAND100, that's S-A-L-A-N-D-100, to get a $100 discount when you register before October 15th. On November 9th and 10th, Midwest.io will be taking place in Kansas City. Midwest.io is a two-day conference bringing together 300 developers for an eclectic collection of talks covering the latest trends, best practices, and research in the field of computing. Tickets are $249, and they will be having a Twitter contest giveaway for a free ticket in the next two weeks if you follow at Midwest.io to participate. And make sure to visit www.midwest.io to find out more. And then coming up on February 18th and 19th of 2016 in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. The call for papers is open and will continue through the 1st of December, and early bird registration is now open. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. Make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. 
And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. If there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Karen Meyer. Karen, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a Clojure developer and I work for Cognitect right now, and I just like programming. <laughs> so I've heard you on a couple different podcasts. You've been making the rounds recently because of your book, Living Closure, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. But you also kind of had an interesting background and experience getting into this because I know you kind of had a Ruby background before you made the jump there and you were getting to work with some interesting people there and pushing the bound. So can you kind of give a rundown of your history and how you kind of got into programming and then the transition to Closure? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know... <laughs> it, in the beginning, <laughs> I uh, I didn't really know anything about computer programming, and I actually wanted to be a ballet dancer. So I trained at a performing arts school here in Cincinnati, and actually, I guess I got good enough to go on professionally for a couple of years at a small company in Memphis. And that was a lot of fun, but it was also like the starving artist lifestyle, <laughs> <laughs> so after a couple of years with mattresses on the floor and eating nothing but ramen noodles and, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of stepped back and said, hey, I, I don't know whether this is really good for me long term. So um, I actually went to college and studied something completely different, physics. And I really liked physics. And you might think, well, how did you decide to go from like ballet to physics? And it actually um, I had a really great physics teacher in high school, and she was a woman. So I really enjoyed it. And I think that having her as a role model really kind of just paved some unconscious path for me <laughs> that this would be a good thing for me to pursue. I also had like this aha moment. I don't know if it's ever happened to you <laughs> in your physics classes, but we had to do this one experiment where you measured out and did all the calculations and you had like this little ball and a ramp. And if you did all the calculations right, it would like land in, in a cup. <laughs> and I did all my measurements and everything went right. And the ball landed, went down the ramp and like landed exactly in the cup. And I thought, wow, this is powerful stuff. <laughs> you could really do something with this. Yeah, I went to uh, University of Cincinnati and studied physics. I really enjoyed it. I had great professors. And then afterwards, I again came to a point in time where I was looking around. I had a bachelor's in science and physics and, and said, hey, there's not many physics jobs out here. <laughs> so uh, at the time, computer jobs were booming. And I had already done some programming in the physics department with Mathematica and modeling some theoretical models. And I enjoyed that too. So I kind of just fell into the programming world and I found that I really dug it and I enjoyed um, working with computers. And I've been doing that ever since. So the Ruby background, I actually started out as, well, you know, I've done many things over my <laughs> life, but I did a big chunk of Java programming. And from Java, 
I started getting involved in these like community user groups and I ran into these Ruby developers that were really interested in programming and kind of passionate and curious and that really appealed to me. So I started hanging out with them. <laughs> <laughs> which led to me getting a job at a Ruby shop where I got the awesome opportunity to work with some other great developers, including Jim Wyrick. So he was a big influence on me and really just a wonderful man and had a huge impact on my life. So it was very sad when he passed away, but I was very glad that I um, got the opportunity to work with him. Yeah. So while I was doing Ruby, I had also kind of discovered closure and I was experimenting with this functional way of thinking that I really enjoyed. So I was starting getting more and more drawn to the Clojure world. And I got involved with an open source project for Clojure.com. So it's not, uh, for, for people that haven't heard of it, it's not about sales of homes and then <laughs> foreclosing on them. It's actually for the number four, and then it's Clojure.com. But it allows you to learn closure and practice problems by way of doing interactive, kind of test-driven little snippets, and then being able to share your solutions with other people. So it was a great project for me as a beginner to the language to get involved with and help them out. And that just kind of got me involved in the closure community. And again, just wonderful people interested in not only getting things done, <laughs> which is fun. And there's a lot of creative people, but also it was a side that I hadn't really been exposed to before, which was a lot of the academic. There was a lot of academic collaboration, like interest in reading papers and exchanging ideas between the academic world and the industry world, which I really just found fascinating. So I started getting drawn more and more to closure <laughs> and started making my own libraries and experimenting more. And just recently, I've gotten to do Clojure full-time, and I just joined Cognitech full-time in June, so I'm just thrilled to be there. Yeah, I've heard about your background, and it sounds really well-rounded because of your dancing experience and then your degree outside of computer science and making that transition. With the physics and the ballet, what about those do you think kind of transferred in? Because I can see the physics... Again, this is just me projecting, but right. if you really got drawn to partially the academic side of software with closure community, I could see where that kind of fit with your physics background. Mm -hmm. But how do those backgrounds kind of align as a whole? Just like what have you found from those backgrounds that have kind of made it interesting in your closure and your software development experience just in general? I imagine the long hours of ballet practice kind of helped set you up for some success there of just being used to having to work a lot and hard and have that training mindset just to be able to continuously learn. But what about those did you find brought you anything special that you that you cherish? No, I think you, you nailed an important part. And it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, at Cognitech, there's a lot of like people like have music backgrounds that come from, you know, arts generally. I think that definitely having a discipline and practice and learning fundamentals. And that's the way it was with dance. And knowing that as you practice and as you get mastery over your skills, it also gives you freedom. And that freedom lets you be creative and lets you create and make things and build things. So that's very true in programming. Once you <laughs> hone your skills to a, um, a certain point, it makes you very powerful and you can you know, <laughs> make wonderful things. And that's a great experience. And also just curiosity. 
being able to follow your curiosity and explore things, I think, is relevant from the arts crossing over into computer programming. And also, I mean, physics or any academic endeavor, right? You know, the ability to ask why <laughs> and then follow it to where it leads. In fact, um, I, you know, I really admired my physics professor that I worked pretty closely with. And he, in fact, during our education said, you know, I'm not just teaching you physics. I'm teaching you how to think. And that's something that just carries through life <laughs> when, you, when you learn how to think. Yeah. When I hear about all these people with the background and having that background of having to practice and train, I kind of get a little jealous because I'm the type that everybody else was jealous of where I could always skate by without having to practice. <laughs> Or do things where, because software, I've always kind of grown up around it and had the knack and kind of got it for the most part. And people are like, what? When you never study? I'm like, no. <laughs> but everybody's like, that's great. I'm like, well, it feels great in school, but it's like the habit of actually having to work and establishing a routine and habit later seems so much more tricky that it's like, I kind of wish that I had been pushed to the point where I actually needed to practice and study and work the skills and especially your dance training in those scenarios that you talk about with the other people at Cognitech. It's like everybody wishes they had the opposite side. It's like, I kind of wish I forced myself to develop those habits more because now that I'm doing it within the past few years, it makes it so much harder than had it been ingrained earlier on. But mm -hmm. yeah, the grass is always greener. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, it's like, there's always the nice benefit. It's like, could you ever find that happy medium? Yeah. So with your physics, and you were talking about the calculations and being able to do that all ahead of time. Is that something that kind of appealed to you in software was if I can get this all figured out and then I can do this, it just kind of works? Or was it something along the lines of something else that kind of drew you to software from the physics side? Because you also mentioned Mathematica, which was kind of mm -hmm. seems the opposite of what you described in your high school course, which is Mathematica, from what I've seen, is a very interactive more REPL style interaction mm -hmm. than the upfront stuff that you normally think about when you deal with physics and say, okay, well, I have all these formulas and now I need to put them together <laughs> and I get the result versus some of the physics style stuff where it's like, well, I've got to do this. And it's like, if you had a setup of that experiment at home, you're like, how can I mm -hmm. tweak that and do that from more of a MacGyver ad hoc, iterative style development. So how did that kind of play into your experience in coming in? And because you you did Java, which is a lot more of the upfront, think about it, do it versus the Ruby enclosure where you have the ability to experiment more as you're thinking through a problem. Yeah, I definitely like the interactive fast feedback. <laughs> in fact, uh, I learned when I was in physics that I'm not a patient person because <laughs> you know, there's there's two branches that you were exposed to, you know, experimental physics where you actually had to do like <laughs> real lab work and wait for things in the real world to happen and and you know, there's a lot of value to that, but there's also a lot of waiting around <laughs> for your experiment to stop or you know, start so I really enjoyed having the instantaneous or near instantaneous response you have with a REPL or just with a computer most of the time when you're developing with it. So, yeah, <laughs> I definitely like the fast feedback. So then the reason I just brought up Ruby to begin with was I remember seeing you talk, I think it was more about your functional experiences at some of the conferences that 
you had kind of talked about things like your Alice in Wonderland and what is a monad and some of your other talks while you were still primarily in Ruby, but experimenting in with that. So that was why I brought up the Ruby. But what were some of those things specifically that kind of attracted you to the research of digging into functional programming? How did you get that spark? Because I don't know that we really touched on that too deeply. Yeah, yeah. Like, so when I was, well, so when I first came into looking at functional programming and closure in general, I came to hear a lot of computer science terms (laughs) that I was not familiar with. (laughs) So, you know, like monad and functor and (laughs) all these other things that definitely made me curious. I mean, I, I realized that I had this huge gap of knowledge that I hadn't really ever been exposed to Lisp before. So there was a huge amount of the world that opened up to me. And that was really exciting to me. And in fact, just the shift from object-oriented way of thinking to a functional way of thinking for me was huge. And it was kind of like I, I came out of my box and I looked around and went, whoa, you know, look at all this stuff. This is wonderful. So I kept being (laughs) self-taught. It's hard to try to figure out sometimes what you don't know. (laughs) So I found kind of an effective way for me to do that was to start looking at some papers, in particular John McCarthy's papers, and try to read them and look at all the things that I didn't understand or know about them and just, you know, start pulling on the threads and trying to learn them as I went. So I made a kind of a program for myself. I tried to do seven McCarthy papers in seven weeks. (laughs) And it ended up taking me a lot longer than that. (laughs) But that's okay. Because I learned tons. You know, I still wouldn't claim that I understand all the McCarthy papers, but it definitely opened up the things that I didn't know about. And I've learned a lot from them. So how did you kind of stumble across the McCarthy papers to begin with? Was it just you knew his name from functional programming and you figured that's just a name and he's got a bunch of papers, so I'm just going to dig into them? Or was there some recommendations from others that you came across? Well, uh, yeah, I really love um, kind of Twitter for this because you kind of get the kind of sort of cosmic unconscious <laughs> going on. So you get all these neural connections, but uh, definitely from Closure and then um, John McCarthy, Lisp. Then, you know, people had brought up some of his papers, took me into a link to his homepage, which is still up and has a link of all the papers that he's written. And, you know, he had not only interest in, in lists, but AI as well, which really appealed to me as well. I had never really started to get involved in that field. So I kind of went down a few paths with that, but yeah, I, <laughs> so it was kind of threads, global, uh, cosmic unconscious, bring me to the homepage. And I just started picking some papers that looked interesting to me. And then they led to other papers that he had referenced and, you know, just more threads. <laughs> you started running down the rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. And you got lost in <laughs> the Wonderland of McCarthy to use your Alice in Wonderland examples you were so yeah. fond of. Yeah, yeah, so... So are there any recommendations for someone getting started with a McCarthy paper? Do you have any particular ones that are kind of your favorite and stand out? Or that you think, if I was to ask you and say, what McCarthy paper should I read and then and first to start with? And then what McCarthy paper have you found that 
I should definitely read, even if it's not my first, but should aspire to be able to understand. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you know some of my favorite ones. So I think some of my favorite ones are like Elephant 2000. Elephant 2000 is kind of some high-level notes on a programming language that he was thinking about for the year 2000, which <laughs> it didn't happen by the year 2000. I think I saw a talk with him a few years later and it still hadn't hadn't happened. But he's got some really interesting ideas in that one of them is the notion of speech acts and how we communicate with machines that I still find fascinating to this day. And it kind of goes, it crosses disciplines, which I really appreciate as well. So it crosses disciplines into philosophy. And it really takes a different take on how we communicate with computer programs and how we communicate with each other. We obviously communicate with each other via the human language. And breaking that down and saying, how do we communicate with each other with the human language? Is there more a higher abstraction or a fundamental way that we communicate that we can study and then use it and express it when we talk to machines. And he used the field of philosophy and in fact, John Searle's uh, speech acts to sort of think about this. And for those that don't know speech acts and I didn't <laughs> reading the paper at first, I was another thread. It's kind of the idea that you could break our communication down to things like statements, like it's sunny, and we understand that very well, and we implement that in our computer languages very well. You know, facts, X is five. There's requests, you know, I would like you to do this for me. <laughs> and again, this is a common thing that we do with computer programs. We give them requests or commands, do this for me. There's queries, you know, I'm asking you a question. I would like some information. Again, <laughs> we do this very well with computers. We ask them questions and get information back. However, if you think about it, they don't ask us questions very much. So, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> Maybe it might be more useful if a computer, you know, when you ran a program, instead of spitting out an error at you, compile error or whatever, saying that you didn't define X, it would just simply ask you, what's X? And you would answer back and it would continue on. <laughs> so, you know, things like that. There's other more subtle things in the speech acts. There's, you know, warning somebody of something that might affect their future behavior. You know, I guess computers do kind of spit out a warning to us, but it doesn't really... <laughs> <laughs> do too much, where we could warn the computers. There is trying to get them to believe something, when you can try to get somebody to believe something that might change their future action. So I, I don't think we've really done that so much with machines. But yeah, I, I, it, it's really fascinating and kind of an interesting way to think about a language. So yeah, that was one fascinating aspect of Elephant 2000 that I liked. <laughs> I could go on and on about this stuff, but... Oh, okay. Well, I'll mention one more paper <laughs> I really like. And this is Ascribing Mental Qualities to Machines. 
And this kind of goes into, you know, what it might mean to ascribe a machine or a program to have beliefs and how this might be useful. He has a classic example in here of having a thermostat have beliefs and it would only have, you know, three very simple beliefs. The room is too hot, the room is too cold, or the room is just right. But one of the things he brings up is, you know, we're very used to interacting with each other and we understand that I have certain beliefs and you have beliefs and it's a very comfortable mental model for us that so maybe this might actually make dealing with machines and programs easier too and perhaps even easier to debug you know when you have a program that is not behaving correctly it must have a faulty belief somewhere and you could try to figure that out Because, of course, its beliefs are faulty, not yours. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah, there, there, there are tons and tons of gems in his papers and on the homepage. And there's even a bit of fiction that he wrote in Lisp. So I encourage everyone to kind of check it out. Full of wonderful things. You mentioned he delved into a lot of AI kind of stuff, aside from the broader outside of computer science topics and bringing those in like a lot of really smart people do, uh, Alan Kay and biology and object oriented kind of things. But is the AI stuff in his papers kind of what got you interested in playing with all the robots and (laughs) hardware that you enjoy doing as well? Or is that more of the excuse because you have the kids to try and get them interested and figure (laughs) out how to learn? Or is that both just a happy coincidence that a happy coincidence. Um, I just started getting into it at the same time and reading his papers that at the same time I realized I could hack a Roomba and, you know, control a paired AR drone. And um, then I started trying out his ideas of, you know, ascribing mental qualities and using beliefs and, you know, using speech acts. I would try them out on my robots. (laughs) So um, I had a lot of fun. Um, with that. So I, I actually, I took some of the ideas that I read in some of these papers and made up a toy language called Babar or Baybar. I don't know exactly how you pronounce it. Kind of like the elephant, you know, the elephant 2000. <laughs> so at, at one point I could program and control beliefs into the robots and control them with speech acts. And at this one point I had my drone that it was supposed to fly up for one meter and then stop, you know, and hover. It actually continued flying up and got stuck on the ceiling, <laughs> at which point I knew it had a faulty belief <laughs> of, of how high it was. So it was it was kind of fun. Yeah, because you've given a couple presentations about some of your robot experiments too, right? Yeah, yeah. So we'll make sure to get I'll make sure to get those included in the show notes for people to kind of go and watch some of those and get a little deeper into what you've done. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That kind of stuff is something on the radar with having a young one now. She's too young to appreciate it, but I figure once she gets a little older, hacking the parrot drone or the Sphero or whatever it might be and kind of showing that and like, look, you can control this. We can turn it into a remote control because we're now throwing back to Mindstorm slash Logo slash Turtle Graphics slash the Lego Mindstorms and all of that. Yeah, there's some wonderful kits for kids now. It's you know, like you said, the Lego Mindstorms in particular. That's just great. 
So all this kind of leads up into wanting to talk about your book. So we kind of talked about your history, your exploration, and you kind of, and you mentioned your practice experience outside and then your practice experience with foreclosure and a couple of the other areas. So that all kind of led and culminated in you writing a book about getting into and living and breathing closure, which appropriately called living closure. Is that an apt summary? Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, in fact, there was a kind of a, a catalyst moment. Again, it's the integration of stuff that's going on in your life at the time. <laughs> at the time, I had decided that I was going to take up running. And I have tried this at various times in my life before. And I had failed utterly. <laughs> so like I tried to run for 15 minutes and I'd feel like I was just going to die. <laughs> and I would just say, oh, you know, I'm just not one of those running people. I guess other people can run, but I just I just can't for some reason. And then I, I came across this program you can put on your phone. There's many of them nowadays, but the one that I used was um, Ease into 5K that had this training program that, you know, just started you out with the first day of running one minute and then walking five minutes or I forget the exact thing. And then just gradually, gradually building up from there. And, you know, it made complete sense, but it's just one of those things I just had never thought about before that all of a sudden I had this freedom that I didn't need to do it all at once. And the reason why I was having so much trouble was I was trying to do too much at once. And at the, the same time that I had this kind of revelation, I help out with organizing our Cincinnati functional users group. And we were just going out afterwards for some beers. And um, at the table, some fellow was saying, oh, yeah, I had tried to pick up closure. I had bought a book and I read the whole book over the weekend and I just don't think I get it. You know, it's just it's just too, too hard. And I was like, that's exactly the same thing. It's me running. This, you know, it took me a really long time to transition my mindset over from, you know, just the object-oriented way of thinking about things into thinking about things functionally and then more data-driven with transformations. And that didn't happen definitely over a weekend. That happened over, you know, a process of many months. So it just kind of clicked that maybe people were like me <laughs> and would benefit from some sort of training program that would give them the freedom to say, no, you don't have to do this all in one weekend and get it. You know, that's really hard. I mean, maybe there's some people that can do that and that's great, but <laughs> give yourself time, give yourself time to let the neurons connect in a different way. It, you know, it's okay. It's a new way of thinking. So that's the premise of the book. Yeah. And it seems that some of those who get it and click immediately, I've probably had exposure to those ideas in other forms in various ways and means. Mm -hmm. Just previous experience of I came in and started doing, again, similar to you, I had .NET before I came into doing any of this stuff and seeing the problems with some of the mutability and where value objects were getting hammering me. It was like, okay, well, does immutability work here better? And yes, it does. And slowly recognizing some of those things without realizing that they've got counterparts in the other areas as well. And so it's like, if it clicks for you, it may have already been, you've already had that knowledge and just it's framed in a different perspective. Right, right, exactly. With your book for Living Closure, you take it slowly. So can you kind of give an idea of what the 
training plan for closure looks like and just at a high level of maybe table of contents kind of summary of as you said when you started running you ran for one minute and you walked for five how does that kind of translate into the (laughs) approach at a high level that you took for the book yeah yeah so the book first of all is divvied up into two parts so the the first half is kind of a brief introduction overview there's some examples i can work through it's very structured but it's also very high level and you know terse and then the second half of the book is actually the training plan part um it's seven weeks and i forget the exact layout but it starts the first few weeks is using foreclosure.com working through just a few of the easy problems and then gradually building up into some of the harder ones then after that's done then there are a few weeks doing some katas that I designed called the Wonderland Kata. So they've got kind of the theme of Alice in Wonderland. And they use for inspiration puzzles that Lewis Carroll invented or he liked. He was a great puzzlist. So it focuses on that. So that kind of builds up into using Line Again and creating your own projects and doing tests. So that kind of gives experience with that. And then finally, in the last week, then it's creating your own web app. So you are actually building up from the smaller introductory practice stuff and just getting familiar with it, and then evolving to something larger versus taking that larger thing and breaking it down to to finer grain levels of saying, you don't see all the pieces you're doing here, but you're actually going to be building on top of something versus, I guess, more of the karate kid kind of thing where you're taking other tasks that you don't think are applicable, but then you see how they fit in. And then you say, okay, now I've developed these skills. I didn't realize I was developing them. I thought I was just working on throwaway problems, (laughs) but I've actually gotten an understanding of this versus going the other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then one chapter of the book in the the first half or... Anyway, is um is devoted to um, getting plugged into the community because I think that's an important part of getting involved with any language. Knowing you know where are the good community documentation sites, when are the conferences, IRC channels, and actually since the book's been published, there is this other great Slack channel for closure people, closureians Slack. So that's another great place for people that are interested in closure and learning closure to hang out. And just be around other enthusiasts. So are there any recommendations of things that the book has gone live, the book's been published, the book's been edited? You kind of mentioned Slack. Is there anything else that after taking a breather from it and having it in fresh eyes that there's anything else that you would think as of an addendum at this point that says maybe this as well? Just to, men- <laughs> just to have a mention and like, I don't know that it deserves a full on full revision of the book, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, stuff stuff is always changing, right? In the closure script, especially world, there's FigWheel now. And FigWheel is so much fun to do some closure script development. And it's very, it allows auto-reloading your pages without having to refresh. It's just very focused on being developer-friendly in that developer experience. Yeah, I mean, just all sorts of stuff changes. There's another book that Alex Miller and Ben Vandegriff just came out with, Closure Applied, which is a great book to follow up my book with. It kind of takes the next step. Like now that you know the basics of closure, here's how to apply it to practical 
problems and model your data. And, you know, it's, it's just a great next step. I would also recommend that. Okay. And you just kind of answered one of my other questions, which was, so you finished Living Closure, you've fun it, but so the closure applied is probably the next best if you're going to kind of give a linearization of things to look at then. Yeah, I just started reading that book right now. It's great. So I would I would totally recommend that. And of course, there's The Joy of Closure, which I got started with and has a very special place in my heart. So that's a fabulous book as well. Yeah, I've read a number of the closure books and they've been all fantastic that I've read. But I can see where, depending on your background and experience and how much you've played with it before or after, or how much you're reading just for the knowledge and worldview versus the applicability of applying it where they all have their special fits based off your experience and everything as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then there's the Closure Macros by Colin Jones. And that's a fabulous book if you really want to delve into the macros. So I, I have a quite, quite a few references of other things to look into in the, in the back of my book. But the new one that is not in there that has just came out was uh, Closure Applied. And you mentioned Closure Script. Are pretty much all of these exercises and everything for that you go through in living closure, is that living closure proper or is that kind of living closure in the closure ecosystem? And so anything in there is pretty much applicable for closure script as well. Yeah, so closure script is very similar to closure, except it's not on the JVM and has different interop. So there is a web section of the book where it goes through a bit of closure script, but the rest of the book really focuses on closure proper. Okay. And I, yeah, I've heard and I've, what little I've seen of Closure Script is it's pretty much the same language, but it does recognize that it is on a different runtime. And so right. it's set up to take advantage of that runtime where it differs. Yeah. And with Living Closure, is this a book that you feel could be applicable to anybody coming into any language and using it as a guideline for coming into whatever thing they're trying to pick up, whether it's a functional language or not, and just kind of understanding and figuring out how that works and using it as a template for their learning process across whatever language it may be? I think so. I think I've heard from quite a few people that they like the structure of the primer and then the actual training plan. So yeah, I think it could work with any <laughs> any language or anything really. <laughs> And it depends on your learning style, right? I mean, if this speaks to you and this is the way that you like to learn, then it definitely works for quite a few people this way. And I think I was thinking more about from the perspective of this seems like a good book for someone who's wanting to come into closure and get their feet wet and know just enough closure to be able to start to bend their brain in the way of closure thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then say... Now I've kind of got an understanding of closure. Let me go look at a Haskell ML, oh, whatever, okay. whatever other language as well. And like I've done the closure thing. I've used your book. Is this a book that I can then follow on and say, now I'm trying to follow along and kind of get a good starting point of just any other language to just be able to know and have the experience of that training plan of say, I've always heard Haskell is interesting. The prelude itself may not be applicable directly just because of the syntax and exposure to closure. But if I can take that basic premise of the pre the first part of the book, use that to structure my learning of ML, and then go back and use that training plan and then apply that training plan in the appropriate way for an ML or whatever language is my next one to pick up. Wow. Yeah, that perhaps. <laughs> that sounds like it makes sense. 
but I haven't heard of anybody use it that way. But um, yeah, I mean. It is still relatively new and on the bookshelf, so I don't yeah. know how much that is. I just didn't know if that was kind of an underlying goal was that like a running program, it can potentially establish that training plan that says, here's how you think about this generally, but this one is specific to closure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's an interesting way to think about it. That wasn't it wasn't a specific goal of mine, but it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's something that would actually be able to be pulled off? For those interested and in, like how general do you think your training plan is? Well, I mean, you would have to, the structure is starting in pieces and then getting bigger and then finally up to your own application. That's pretty general. You would, of course, need to know how to apply it in the domain. I, I don't know like Haskell well enough to know what the <laughs> what what the foreclosure version of Haskell is or the, the closest equivalent. So I guess you'd have to know that first. <laughs> yeah. And I guess what I'm thinking, I don't, again, I haven't really dug into Haskell either, but it was more about like going through and hitting the project Euler problems and yeah, say yeah. if, if the foreclosure doesn't exist for a Haskell or ML or whatever language it is, then I can go hit the, maybe I hit the project Euler problems, but those still kind of translate as applicable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I think it'd be fabulous if people came up with training plans for other languages like that. That'd be really cool. Is there anything about the book that we haven't breached on as far as topics go that you want to make sure we cover and let people know about for the book that you feel we haven't give due notice to? No, I think I think we covered it <laughs> pretty well. Um, it's a gentle introduction, and it has a tra training plan. So if you're if you're new to Closure, it is the the book for you. If you've been playing around Closure for a while, maybe you should you know, definitely check the table of contents <laughs> to make sure it isn't covering too much you already know. And definitely, Closure Applied is a great book to follow it up with. Wanted to make sure we weren't going to leave any gaps there and leave anything unsaid about a book that's out and readily available for people to consume. Oh, I guess it's O'Reilly if people want. <laughs> I didn't mention that before. It's O'Reilly. So. Yeah, and I was just about to mention that as well because I looked that up before. I'm like, which publisher is this again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so it's an O'Reilly book and they can find it. And so we'll segue back a little bit. Part of your training plan kickoff of this living closure stuff was you were talking about your Cincinnati functional programming user group. What kind of group is that? Like, how is that one structured? Is that you have a bunch of different members across languages there? Or is it pretty much a closure group, but larger interest? And what kind of what's your makeup and how does it run? This group got founded, I guess it's about five years ago now, I think. So I discovered closure and I was so excited about it. I gave a presentation at our local Java users group. And in the beginning, I said, has anybody here played with Clojure? And one fellow in the room put his hand up and I said, I need to talk with you afterwards. <laughs> and his name is Creighton Kirkendall. And we're great, great friends, been great friends ever since. Um, he helped me found it. And he's gone on to write some fabulous Clojure script libraries as well. So great guy. But we got together with a couple of the other members too, Ben Krillak and Joe Herbers, because we wanted to found this. And we discussed, we were like, should it just be a closure user group or should it be larger, be a functional user group? And although Creighton and I were like, oh, we just, we love closure. We just wanted to be closure. We recognized that we had, you know, a larger community to grow in Cincinnati and 
you know, we liked hearing about all sorts of other languages as well. So we made it be a functional users group and has been going strong ever since. We cover all sorts of things. Haskell, we've done like Idris. Occasionally we even do non-functional languages that we just like. <laughs> so we have a lot of fun with it. Sometimes we do presentations. Sometimes we just have hack nights. One of my personal favorite hack nights was we all got together in the room and we decided to try to learn a bit of Idris with nobody knowing it. And this was great. It was fabulous because we just had no, no one felt like they had to be smarter than anybody else. And we sat there as a group and tried to figure out FizzBuzz for, I guess it was like 20 minutes. And we had a great time. We were going to the docks, trying stuff out. It wasn't working. We were trying to figure out where we were going wrong, how we were thinking about this. And finally, we got FizzBuzz to work and you know, the whole room erupted in a big cheer. And then we decided, well, where can we take this? Let's prove FizzBuzz works. <laughs> so it's just a great group of people. And I'm so grateful that we have such a great community in Cincinnati. Was that done kind of everybody individually trying to solve it and then sharing results together? Or was that kind of mob programming, coding dojo style, where everybody was kind of working on it all together and kind of popping up with answers and questions as needed? Yeah, we were all working it all together. Uh, sometimes we share who was driving. You know, we'd all take turns and then try to look up, <laughs> figure out where we were going wrong. <laughs> so we had one one fellow that had um, some pretty good Haskell experience that uh, helped us out a lot too. <laughs> so. And did you manage to get it proved? No, we didn't. But we had a lot of fun along the way. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it sounds like it's pretty good. I'm just trying to figure out how you would prove an invariant of fizzbuzz in general but off the top of my head but that sounds like something i'm gonna have to stew over to say what are the actual invariants of fizzbuzz other than the basic rules <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it was a learning experience but it, as a group learning experience it was it was great that sounds that sounds awesome and that just gives some good ideas of other ways to try and tackle some of these user groups because i've heard from some of these guests a bunch of different styles of user groups and how people go through and structure their own. And it's interesting to see what makes user groups succeed in any given smaller community that's around and trying to attract people to the concept of functional programming. Yeah. It, in Cincinnati, I think we're really lucky to have just some great people involved. Also a tip, we generally don't have pizza. So I don't know where that puts it in there. <laughs> So our meetings are generally small. On the occasions where we do have pizza, the meeting size balloons up. But the people that show up, even when there's no pizza, are the hardcore functional programmers. That's your gauge of your community is do a meeting without pizza <laughs> one night and see how many people stay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't announce it beforehand. You let them show up and see if they stick around after they find out there's no pizza. <laughs> That's right. So you also just recently gave a Strange Loop talk that, as we're recording, looks like it just got published as well, even though Strange Loop was just this past weekend. And they've been pretty good about it, so we'll make sure to get a link to the talk on the show notes. But do you want to give everybody a rundown of what your talk was about and kind of sell it for anybody to go out there and go visit for that didn't make it to Strange Loop or that, sure. made, it, that sure. made it to Strange Loop even and 
should regret not going to your talk <laughs> and going to another one's person's instead? Sure, sure. I mean, I have definite regrets of not making it to some of the other talks going on. But luckily, like you said, the talks are already out there. I mean, they just had, I guess it was like only a day turnaround. They're really fabulous about getting the talks up there. So yeah, there's a wonderful amount of just fantastic talks at that conference. So yes, definitely go out there on YouTube and find them. And you just really can't go wrong with any of them. So my talk in particular was a lot of fun. It was called Unconventional Programming with Chemical Computing. And this was taken from some other papers in a book that I had picked up on a whim because it had a really cool title, Unconventional Programming Paradigms, <laughs> that immediately attracted to me. So the first chapter I opened it up was all about like quantum computing. So I was like, fabulous. And the second chapter was chemical computing. And I was like, huh, what the heck is that? <laughs> so I uh, started digging into that and it was really interesting. It is just a different way of modeling the world. And this isn't using like real chemicals reactions, programming through chemicals. This is using the abstract metaphor of the chemical reaction to do computing in which I think the main takeaway from it, uh, I guess I need to explain it just a little bit more before I explain the, the main takeaway. So if you were wanting to calculate the maximum of some set of numbers, we all pretty much know how to do this in programming. You'd get them in a list or an array or whatever. You'd loop over them and then find the biggest one. So the way that you would do this in the chemical programming paradigm is quite different. You think about all these numbers or integers as molecules, and then they react with one another. And the reaction rule then makes two new molecules. So if you had a five and a three react together, they would return two five molecules because the rule would say that they return the biggest value of the two. And so you just let, with no order at all, you just let these molecules react with each other pairwise. And you do this for a period of time, randomly let them react together. And then after a while, and this is one of the hard things, right, is how long is a while, <laughs> um, you can take a measurement, in quotes, of the system. And a measurement would be looking at the distinct number of all these number molecules, and you would get your max result. So it might not be the most efficient way of calculating the maximum, but it does have some advantages that I kind of find out. And one is that you can kind of crystallize the transformation or logic that happens between the reaction of two of these numbers and kind of encapsulate it in kind of a nice, elegant way. The other benefit, which I think is very interesting, especially where we are today, is that there is no order in the calculation. You know, you're not looping in a particular order through an array or through a list. And the advantage of this is when there's no order or no sequencing, you can do things concurrently. And you can just do that up to the max. So that's important in all sorts of things nowadays with processing and with distributed systems. So that's an interesting and possibly beneficial thing about thinking about things inspired by nature. And also the thing that I really liked after reading the papers and experimenting with it 
is it just made you realize how much every day that we have this incidental sequentiality in our programming languages and our lives that we just don't think about anymore because it's so commonplace. It's just the way that we always do it. We always have a list and we iterate through the list. And is there another way to do things? Yes, there is. There's another way to model the world. There's another way to think about it. And that's how actually nature gets a lot of things done. <laughs> so, you know, um, looking at nature for inspiration, I think, is, is, a, is an interesting thing to do and see what we can take and apply to our computer science and industry. That kind of way you described it makes me think of the reducers and closure and being able to take advantage of those or mm -hmm. the actor model in Erlang or Scala with some of the isolated processes just going concurrently and in whatever order. And it also kind of sounds like something I want to say it was either Abelman or Sussman gave at a presentation where they were talking about you have the same calculations kind of going on multiple different manners and they all kind of feed back to themselves and then kind of mm. group up. But like everything's just like if this is things reacting over here and then this thing's reacting over there and when they both react, they're going to react together and kind of inform back on that other reaction. So kind of like they feed back into each other to some extent, it sounds like in the way you're kind of describing that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I go a little bit more of this in my presentation too, is that when you have these like simple behaviors, then they can build on each other and you can get self-organization. We see this in nature as well, you know, very simple behaviors like ants and, and things like that and resiliency in these systems too. So there's one example that I took from the papers that I implemented a uh, demo is a um, self-organizing mail system that is also self-healing. So that's totally interesting too, right? <laughs> yeah. Your talk has just made it higher on the list of the Strange Loop talks to go watch. <laughs> and I'm sure that if I actually had the time, I could absolutely binge and watch every single talk on it. But your description has just put it higher on the radar or something <laughs> to go watch sooner than later. Yeah, it's cool stuff. And one of the, the exciting parts that I really liked about giving the presentation at Strange Loop in particular is that the ideas that I discuss in the papers so far are, are and I, I talked to one of the authors of the papers, is only in research right now. So there's really no examples in the wild. And I'm really excited about getting those ideas out there, you know, among all your listeners and all the smart people at Strange Loop and the people that watch the videos and just seeing what sort of cosmic unconscious <laughs> sort of thing that that might spark. And maybe we'll see some sort of great innovation in our space that came from thinking about things a little bit differently. Well, I think you just answered one of the other questions, which we'll address now. And I'll circle back around to a second question about Strange Loop, but I was going to ask it later, but it sounded like you've already started in on that topic was any specific calls for the listenerships after hearing this episode. That sounds like that's one is to try and look at some of these ideas and see how you might be able to bring these more academic ideas into real world industry and bring those and meld those together to be able to feedback results of how applicable they were. But is there anything else you want to kind of call out to listeners Besides that and your yeah, book? Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect call, you know, <laughs> to uh, take take your ideas and apply them creatively <laughs> where you can see that they can work. So, Okay, that sounds great. And that's the call to action for everybody listening is to go check out some of these outside ideas of things that aren't usual. Start with Start with your talk and see where you can take it. 
And so just about other strange loop stuff, was there any other strange loop talks that you kind of want to call out and make oh, notice that yeah. people should definitely put on their list to watch after yours? Yeah. Philip Wadler was there and he actually gave a couple talks, but Propositions as Types was a fabulous talk and I, I encourage everybody to watch that, especially at the end. I'm not going to say what happens, but there is a spoiler. I mean, there's, yeah, it won't be a spoiler, but yeah, there's something very special that happens at the end. I, that might have been the talk that I've seen going around on Twitter yeah. that everybody was <laughs> citing, and that has definitely made the list of things to watch as well. So yeah. your endorsement of it adds it even higher to the <laughs> list after yours. Cool. So is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we mention? Any appearances at a conference just attending, whether or not it's this year or coming up to be slated at a future year that or general conferences that you generally try and attend, like a strange loop or a, the closure con in the future that says, if you think you might be doing this, mm-hmm. hit me up, find me, or just anything else in general you want people to know about? Yeah. So unfortunately, I won't be at ClosureConj just because, you know, my family and travel, I generally can't do Strange Loop and ClosureConj in the same year. But ClosureConj is a fabulous conference. So if you're interested in that, you should definitely check that out. And they said Strange Loop is a great conference too. So you should, if you haven't gone there, you should definitely check it out next year. And you can find me on, I'm on the Twitters, I'm on the Slack channel. So I'm on the GitHubs. <laughs> I'm on the internet. So if you want to, you know, ping me, feel free. So GigaSquid on Twitter mm-hmm. and your site is? Yeah, my homepage is gigasquidsoftware.com and um, my GitHub is gigasquid. Sounds good. And we'll get links to all of those in the show notes as well. So people can follow along and see what kind of interesting things you're you continue to do. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for being a guest. As always, I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And again, thank you very much, Karen, for giving your time. I know we missed a previous call with Skype. And I'm glad we could get fit this in before you go off on your vacation and have some fun, I guess, away from work, maybe even away from the computer, but possibly <laughs> not knowing. Yeah, actually, uh, it's it's not a vacation, uh, but coming up this week, but it's a work get together for Cognitect. We're all remote workers or just about everybody. So it's actually a time for us to all meet in person. So I've been talking and working with people remotely, but some of them I haven't actually ever met. (laughs) So it'll be a great time to meet everybody in person. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Well, that sounds just as fun and (laughs) probably even easier than trying to force yourself to take away a week without technology (laughs) to try and enjoy an actual vacation. I do like that too. (laughs) Yeah, but that's, that's a lot trickier to try and remove that compulsiveness than going off and doing a work get-together event. Yep. It was a real pleasure talking with you, and I'm glad we managed to sneak this in before you had to go dark for a week with that. Well, thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.